Welcome to the Granary Church podcast. We're happy you could join us. For more information on the Granary Church, head to granary.org.au or follow our socials at the Granary Church. Thanks to uh, the worship team too for leading us so beautifully. You can encourage them with a, some cheering and some hooting and hollering. They do a terrific job. They do a really great job. And uh, I get a particular kick out of seeing all these kids up there. You guys are just so fresh and young and talented and you just make guys like me obsolete. <laughs> Especially that young guy with the beard, the big thick beard. Yes. Yes. Oh, if you're youth, you can go. Um, not out of the whole building. There is a youth program for you that um, we are super excited for you to be a part of. So youth, get up. Let's give youth a bit of a cheer as they go. Encourage them, because pretty soon they will be uh, replacing the young guys who are already on stage. And so it goes on and on, and God's kingdom grows, and it's wonderful. I just want to pray for those guys as they go, actually. God, thank you for um, our youth. Thank you for the teenagers in our church, Lord, the next generation, God. We want to speak that blessing over them, God, that they would uh, grow and grow in their faith, that they would see you do things in their lives that we have only dreamed of, and that we would see your kingdom advance further and further through that next generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today um, we are continuing our new challenge. We are looking at the Gospel of Matthew, having finished some time in the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Matthew is an account of Jesus' ministry here on earth, and it's the first one that you'll find, first book in the New Testament. And we're starting by looking at Jesus' teaching in one of the most famous speeches in all of history, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. And particularly today, we're going to look at one passage within that sermon and look at the two things that Jesus says to his followers in this sermon. He says that one, that we are the salt of the earth, and that two, that we are the light of the world. Now, Jesus uses both of these images of salt and light to show us that as his followers, we are called to have an influence on the world around us. We are called to influence the world around us. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like somewhat of a daunting task. I think of myself and think, what could I possibly do to influence this world for God's kingdom and for his glory? I don't know if anyone else ever feels like that, but I certainly do. But it's not impossible. And, and Jesus, of course, knew this when he gave us this message. Small things can bring about big change. They really can. And so to start off with today, I wanted to share an illustration of how something small can influence the world. And we're going to start by looking at some Australian poetry. Come on, where's the hooting and cheering for Australian poetry? Yeah, that is hot. Yeah. Yeah, get your damper and your billy tees out, yeah. And you stick with all the bottle caps on it. and <laughs> Typical weekend activity in the Baker House, I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I'm, <laughs> I'm 
the, the poem that I'm going to uh, share from um, is not is a very famous Australian poem. It's not Slim Dusty's Bub With No Beer. Um, unfortunately, you'll be pleased to know that that is the text from which Pastor Sue's going to be preaching from in her next message. Um, so that'll be a good one. Uh, I'm going to share from another famous Australian poem, and this is uh, called My Country by Dorothea McKellar. And I'm sure many of you have heard of this one. And if you don't think you have, once you hear it, you'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that one. Um, but rather than um, me recite it for you, my seven-year-old daughter, Audrey, is going to do it for you. My Country by Dorothy McKellar. I love a sunburned country, a land of sweeping plains, of ragged mountain ranges, of droughts and flooding rains. I love her far horizon, I love her dual sea, her beauty and her terror, the wide valley for me. An opal-hearted country, a willful, lavish land. All you who have not loved her, you will not understand. The earth holds many splendours, wherever I may die, I know to what round country my homing thoughts will fly. Give it up for Audrey. Isn't she terrific? And she read it so beautifully. And that was all from memory. She memorised that for, for school. Did a terrific job. Much better than me. Now, there are many reasons why I had Audrey read that poem. Besides the obvious that that was just beautiful. But one of the reasons I, I had Audrey recite that poem was because Dorothea McKellar was only a girl herself when she wrote My Country. So she wasn't yet an established poet or author or writer of, of any shape. She was just a teenage girl who was on holidays in Europe. And she was from Australia, but she was on holidays in Europe. And she was homesick. She missed her country. She missed the land of Australia. And she noticed that she seemed to be in the minority when it came to uh, that feeling amongst her peers. A lot of the um, early European settlers of Australia didn't experience that same feeling of homesickness when they went back to Europe. In fact, they found the landscapes and the environment of Europe and particularly England much nicer than those of Australia. They thought that the English countryside was superior to what we have here in Australia. They thought Australia was inferior. <laughs> That's right. They, they somehow figured that, you know, huddling together in little clumps on cold, windy, rocky beaches was somehow nicer than enjoying any of our thousands of kilometres of pristine coastline. But that was the attitude at the time. So in, uh, in the middle of this negative attitude about, um, about our country, this teenage girl writes this poem that describes all of the reasons that Australia's landscapes had been so criticised by European set settlers. And she literally turns it on its head. So she says that the very things that everyone felt were ugly about Australia, like its extreme weather that goes from drought to flood to drought again, were the same things that made it beautiful. 
And in doing so, she created an unexpected classic work of art that, um, that spread throughout Australia and began to influence the way that the Australian landscape and country was thought of. And now the Australian landscape and the Australian environment is renowned the world over for its rugged beauty. And it's the number one reason why people from all over the world come to visit. It's because of the country. One girl's poem influenced the world's perception of her country. Small things can have a powerful influence on the world. Jesus knew what he was talking about. So today we're going to look at how we've been called by Jesus to influence the world. Now before we get to the text looking at us being salt and light, I want to spend some time just again landing in the context of this sermon so that we appreciate what Jesus was getting at when he gives this quote about salt and light. Now the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like Jesus' manifesto. It's where Jesus announces the nature of his ministry or what God was up to by sending his son to earth. And what he was up to was that he wasn't just sending Jesus down for a holiday or a missionary trip where he handed out a few free meals and healed a few people and brought greetings from all the crew in heaven. What he was doing was he was coming down to bring in the arrival of the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this was big language for um, those days, partly because Jesus' audience lived in a time where they were under the rule of another kingdom, the Roman Empire. They were under an oppressive military occupation. So the news that their God, the one true God, Yahweh, was finally bringing his kingdom to earth to replace the Roman Empire and every other empire like it would have been huge news for them. But even more encouragingly to the people of the time, Jesus starts off by saying that the very people that the kingdom of God is coming to first are them. You see, the Jewish people living in Palestine at that time would have largely fulfilled the description of what we find at the start of Jesus' sermon in the passage we know as the Beatitudes. They, these people were poor, they were mourning, and they were not in terribly important and Jesus arrives walks to the top of the hill of this natural amphitheater by the uh, lake of Galilee and launches into his first major recorded sermon by calling these same people blessed because the kingdom of God is theirs first in Matthew 5 it says this blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The people in the crowd listening to Jesus' words back then would have been pretty excited at hearing this list because he was speaking directly to them. Not only was the kingdom of God arriving, but it was coming to them first. They were the special ones. Out of everyone, they had been chosen. The best little analogy I could think of this 
when I was preparing was when my number was picked out of the hat at the uh, primary school raffle and I won a $2 voucher to the canteen. Yeah. Out of everyone, I had been chosen. You understand, look, um, this is going back some time ago and $2 at the canteen went a long way. There was a lot of fruit balls and carobs that you could buy with it. $2. And um, can I just say that, yeah, it's not, the Caribs were dressed up as something called chalk buds. Um, anyway, all kids in the 90s fell for that trick. But that voucher lasted me a long time. And it was very exciting because I had been chosen. I was a special one. Now, receiving the news that you were the ones who were most blessed, being congratulated because the kingdom of God was coming to you, this would have been huge for these people. It was such a special thing. You, an insignificant, poor, oppressed nobody, was about to receive the kingdom of God. This was huge news for them. How are we going with this context? Is it making sense? Good. Okay. We've got a bit more to get to before, um, get through before we get to Jesus' um, quote about salt and light. So Jesus says one more thing before he gets to the passage on salt and light. Straight after Jesus had said these super positive blessings, he follows it up with these not so positive ones. In verse 10 to 12, he says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And to make his point clear, Jesus doubles down on this by saying that you are blessed for being insulted, persecuted, and accused of all sorts of evil. When people call you close-minded, a fool, divisive, hateful, when people exclude you, refuse to do business with you, cut you off from your family, blessed are you when your name is said with hate and spite and you are treated with hate and spite because you are associated with Jesus. I can pretty much guarantee you that if the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount got everyone excited and got them cheering and clapping, this bit probably didn't. There was probably crickets. It's a bit like when you get a, you know, a, a call on the phone and someone says to you, congratulations, you've just saved 20% off your next power bill. You think, Wow. It's great news. And then they keep talking and you realize you haven't saved anything yet and they need to get all your account details and your credit card information and your firstborn child and a whole bunch of other things and they're taking up your time and your dinner's going cold and all of a sudden you realize you've been dudded and this isn't anything to celebrate. And I wonder if maybe when it got to this point of the message, people in the crowd thought, oh goodness, more persecution. I don't know if this sounds very good at all. You see, there are a number of ways we can respond to this news from Jesus about being persecuted. There are a few brave souls here who may be inspired. Others might be turned off following Jesus altogether. Oh, that's just too hard. But I feel that for the vast majority of us, the tendency would be something in the middle, just to pull back a little. 
not to renounce our faith completely, but to maybe engage in a bit of a toned-down version that keeps us a little bit safer from some of the uh, persecution. You know, we might entertain ideas of becoming Amish or of setting up a commune in the hills with just a few select friends and being completely self-sufficient and nothing ever goes wrong in those setups. Just ask a current affair. <laughs> but I think for most of us, we just pull back a little bit, just tone back the Jesus stuff a little bit. And so that brings us to our key passage for today, which is Jesus' comments about us being salt and light. Because as soon as Jesus had said these harsh, frightening bits about persecution, it is almost like, imagine this, it's almost like he knew what the majority of his listeners, both 2,000 years ago and today, would be feeling like. It's almost like he knew we would be feeling like pulling back a little, like withdrawing. And so he follows it up with this in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Listen carefully here. Jesus is telling his followers that they are the salt and the light of the world. Not out of the world, of the world. In other words, Jesus does not call us to pull away to safety because of persecution, but instead to lean forward and move into the world. Rather than to run away, he calls us to lean in and influence the world despite the persecution and despite the danger. See, this is the miracle of the kingdom of heaven. God chooses to bring it to his world through his people. We are the ones through whom God brings his kingdom. We are not to give up on the world like light hidden under a bowl. And likewise, we are not to blend into the world like salt that has lost its saltiness. I'll say that again because these are the two ways that we'll be tempted to go. We're not to give up on the world and we're also not to blend in to the world. We are called to influence the world around us by being bearers of the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus could have chosen any two items he liked to get his point across here. And he chose salt and light. Now, I don't pretend to know all the reasons why Jesus did that, but we're going to look at a few things about salt and light. Um, firstly, it's important to remember that Jesus often used analogies of things that his audience was familiar with. So back then, as is now, most of us know what salt and light are. And they would have been a part of daily life back then, just as they are for us now, probably even more noticeably 2,000 years ago. But the main point is, is that in picking these two examples, we've got to remember why Jesus is picking them. And the overall message here is that he is saying that we are to be an influence on the world around us. So firstly, let's look at salt. 
So salt serves a lot of purposes in everyday life. And 2,000 years ago, it was no different. There's two main purposes that salt serves in everyday life. So one, um, salt um, preserves things. And two, um, salt um, gives flavour. So firstly, um, salt is used to preserve things. It stops things from going bad. Back in Jesus' day, they didn't have fridges. So if you wanted last night's casserole to last longer than a day, you'd have to cover that thing in salt. If you've ever wondered why ham um, takes so long to go bad or why the uh, Big Mac that's still rattling around in the back of your car hasn't changed colour yet, the answer is salt. Now, the second main purpose of salt was another thing that we have um, today, and that is for flavour. Things taste better with salt. For some people, more salt than others. Now, the reason that things, there are a number of reasons why uh, things taste better with salt. So firstly, salt tastes good because our bodies need it. Our bodies need salt to live and to function. And so we crave salt because our body needs it. We might not always recognize that that's what our body's doing, but sometimes salt is exactly what our bodies need. And so we crave the taste of it. Salt also helps with flavor because it balances tastes. See, even sweet things um, use salt in their ingredients. Things like ice cream and cookies often include salt. You might have heard how salt makes things taste sweeter. Well, there's actually truth to that because what salt does is it actually inhibits the taste buds on our tongue that are sensitive to bitterness. So what salt does is it inhibits the bitterness and makes things taste sweeter. Salt brings out the sweetness and softens the bitterness. I read an article um, a few years ago, which I sometimes wonder why I remember things, but I remember this one, and it's proved useful now because I'm going to use it in a message. But uh, it was an article on sources, and it was saying that there are so many different types of sources in the world. For instance, mustard. There's about 15 different types of mustard and different subtypes within that. So you've got your yellow, brown, black, Dijon, English, German, Chinese, etc., and you can find the same with salad dressings. There's multiple types of salad dressings. Um, you can find it with hot sauce. You can find it with all sorts of sauces, except for one, tomato sauce. That's not because people haven't tried. People have tried to jazz it up and do different things to it. It's just it never takes off. No one really likes it. We like our tomato sauce just as it is. You can play around with the other ones and fancy them up, but tomato sauce, leave it be. And so this article looked at the scientific reasons as to why this is the case. And it found something really interesting. It found that tomato sauce is one of only a very small number of foods which actually simultaneously stimulates all five types of your taste buds at the same time. Yeah. So, so tomato sauce... <laughs> hang in there. Tomato sauce <laughs> is simultaneously sweet... Sour, bitty, bitty. <laughs> Let me start again. Simultaneously sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and umami. Umami is the uh, fifth one that everyone always forgets, like, you know, the fourth member of the Beatles or 
the fourth, um, the fourth of the third mus- three musketeers for some reason. There's four of them, and, and anyway, anyway, it doesn't matter. But um, umami is the fifth type of taste. Means like a volume or body to something. Anyway, each of these taste sensations are all met at the same time by a humble tomato sauce, which may explain why pie shops have gotten so stingy. Maybe they, maybe they got a bit of a whiff of this article and are holding out on the uh, tomato sauce sachets. But tomato sauce is a special, special food. Some would say a super food. Take that, quinoa. Yeah. Because everyone knows quinoa doesn't stimulate any of your taste buds. It's good for you, though. I'll give it that. Now, imagine if you took the salt out of tomato sauce. It would be so disappointing. So disappointing. It would be like the odd occasion that you've done a quick grocery shop, gone home, um, made yourself some toast, put it in your mouth and gone, what? happened to the butter because you've picked up that abomination of butter that's in the dairy section that says unsalted and it just tastes like you've just put a sock on your toast it's terrible very disappointing the perfect five-way balance of taste of your tomato sauce would be ruined if we took the salt out salt provides balance salt stops things from going bad salt makes things sweeter. Salt inhibits bitterness. Salt gives us what we need even when we don't recognize it. Salt keeps things in balance. You are the salt of the earth. So we are called to preserve what is good. When those around us are falling to pieces, are giving up on life, are hopeless and dejected, we are called to be the ones to preserve what is good in them, to call out who God made them to be. We are called to preserve what is good. We are called to make things sweeter. When life is full of hardship and pain and suffering, we are the ones who are called to be there to make things sweeter, to bring life, peace, and joy. We're called to make things sweeter. We're called to inhibit bitterness. When life is bitter and miserable, when there is loss and death and pain, we are called to inhibit the bitterness of the sting of death by bringing the hope of eternity with Christ. When the world is dying and decaying and destroying itself, we are called to bring them the very thing that their hearts are yearning for, even though they might not realize it. We are called to bring the good news of Jesus. We are called to influence the world. You are the salt of the earth. So firstly, salt. Secondly, light. You are the light of the world. Now, like salt, light is essential to life. Without light, we're finished. Every living thing depends on light to grow and to live and to thrive. You might think there's a few exceptions with some bugs like worms or mushrooms or sea mollusks that live at the bottom of Mariana Trench. But everything depends on some other form of life form or some other matter that needs light in order to thrive. When God said, let there be light, 
right at the beginning of creation, he was setting in place something that would sustain life. Without light, the whole world would grind to a halt. Also, light guides. It illuminates and directs. It points out both hazards and a safe passage or a safe way through. The analogy Jesus uses here is that of a city on a hill. Because in Jesus' day, if you found yourself moving along a road at night, uh, you didn't have street lamps, you didn't have uh, high beams on your donkey or your mule. Um, how you would navigate would be by the lights of the city on the hill. Now, if you're familiar with the writings of the disciple John, you will have noticed that John includes quite a number of other famous quotes about light. He includes them in his gospel, the gospel of John. You'll notice he includes them in his letters to the early church in his letters, 1 John 2, John 3, John. And you'll notice that he includes it in um, his description of the uh, vision that God gives him about the end of um, uh, history here on earth um, in the book of Revelation of John. There's a bit of a theme. If you want to know what he wrote in the Bible, it's generally got John in the title. And he has this quote uh, recorded of Jesus about himself in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12. It says, Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I just want to stop there for a second, because I'd like us to catch the gravity of this. Jesus is calling us something that he also calls himself. Not only does he say that we are the light of the world, but also that he is the light of the world. If you're not daunted by this, I just want to share another passage with you that describes what it looks like or the best that John could describe what it looks like when Jesus sets up his throne here on earth, in a special city, built in heaven, brought to earth, where he rules and reigns here forever. I want you just to listen to this description from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, or Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. That's the light of the world. That's our King Jesus. And he calls us to be in the light of the world? How does that work? Well, let me share um, a story with you. Last year, me and my family went on a whale-watching cruise just out of Newcastle Harbour. Um, has anyone done a whale-watching cruise before? It's all right. You can admit it. They're, they're awesome. I used to think, oh, whale-watching cruise, that's just something the tourists do. And then I'd dawn on me, wait a minute, <laughs> they're on to something. This sounds good. So we went on a whale-watching cruise, and it was amazing. It was um, about this time last year, and it was a beautiful day, beautiful, brilliant blue sky. It was 
bitterly cold out in the boat. But it was spectacular. We got to see Newcastle from the ocean, which was fun. But of course, the main highlight was the whales. These massive sea creatures just breaching around us and flapping their fins and their ginormous tails. It was spectacular. It really was. And our guide was terrific too. Not for the same reasons. He wasn't getting out of the boat and splashing around and spraying water everywhere. That would have been dangerous amongst many other things. But he was terrific because he was full of whale facts and information, which is really helpful for, I guess, going for the job of being a whale tour guy. And he told us some interesting facts about whales, uh, and particularly uh, about the song that whales sing. You know the songs that whales sing? They sort of go from those low notes to those really high notes. And um, if you're trying to imagine it, I've been told that when I wake up from a nap, make similar sort of sort of noises, which I won't demonstrate for you now. I'm going to go from grumbly to high pitched as a stretch out. And anyway, whale songs sound a bit like that, but heaps better. Um, and every year, because we were looking at humpback whales on this, this trip. Every year, um, the male humpback whales go up and down the coast with all the other whales, but the male humpback whales are the ones who sing. And every year, they sing a different song. And all the male humpback whales sing the same song. So if there are uh, two male humpback whales near each other, and by near each other in whale distances, this can be a couple of kilometres, they will um, sing to each other and they'll sing the exact same song, sometimes in unison. So you're probably wondering, and this is our question for the whale guy, how on earth do these whales learn a new song every year? How are they doing this? Is there like a whale radio station they're tuning into and there's like, you know, popular songs that are going around? How do they do it? Well, apparently... There's still a lot of mystery to whale songs, but apparently these songs are composed every year in the summer waters of Antarctica where they go to feast. See, there in the whale's version of Paradise, the song is composed when all the whales are together. And then they go out from Antarctica, which is at the bottom of the world in a centralised spot, and then they spread out on their migration north into the, all the oceans of the world, and they carry the same song with them. A different composition every year, which they then sing through the water all the way to the tropics. And it's a song that, I guess, in a sense, reminds them of home. The song is carried from Antarctica, the place where their journey ends and begins, the place where they are fed, where they have all that they need, their paradise. The relationship between Jesus as the light of the world and us as the light of the world is like this whale song. See, we begin as an idea in the king's heart, brought into being by his love, designed by his mind, shaped by his hands in the throne room of paradise. And it is the same king and that same paradise that we will return to. His kingdom is our paradise. 
We are not the light of the world by our efforts. We are not the light of the world because we have all of the answers, do all of the correct things, have all of the success or all of the money or because we fight the hardest for justice. We are the light of the world because we've been in the presence of the King. And when Jesus stood on that hillside in Galilee 2,000 years ago, he declared that he had come to be with us despite our brokenness and our dysfunction and our sin. He declared us blessed for being poor in our spirit, blessed for being weak, blessed for looking for justice, blessed for mourning, because in that state he came to us. The king has come and has brought his kingdom to us. And because of the work of Jesus, we are now in the presence of the king. And when you have been in the presence of the king, when you have been in the throne room of paradise, you will carry his light and his song with you wherever you will go. And the king's light cannot help but influence and change the world around us. It reverberates in your bones and spills out to the world around you. Wherever you go, you cannot contain it. Now, this is not through effort. It's not through being clever. It's through simply being in the presence of the King. Through spending time in His Word, in prayer, in worship, alone, and also together in church. When you're in the presence of the king, he lights you up like a bonfire can light up a candle. And it doesn't matter how big that candle is. As long as you don't hide it, that light will influence the world around you. You see, light only influences one way. It is not made darker by the dark around it. It makes the dark lighter every time we are the salt and the light of the world and not because we've earned it blessed are the meek blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn it's not because what we've done we are the salt and the light of the world because of what he has done you are the salt and light of the world I'm going to invite the, the music team up and we're going, to, we're going to finish up. I've got two things on my heart I'd like to pray in response to what we've been looking at today. The first is that I know that there are probably some people here who this is the first you have heard of Jesus bringing his kingdom here. And this is the first time you've thought, I don't know if Jesus is my king. I don't know if I've ever made him king of my life. I don't really know what that looks like. And maybe you're feeling a stirring in your heart that you would like to try that out. Well, can I say to you that the kingdom of heaven has come for you. Jesus came especially for you. There isn't just an extra chair that he's pulling into the room just so you can be part of it. It's come to you first. He came to you first. And uh, he is calling you tonight. 
And so I want to pray for you if that's you tonight. If you've never made Jesus king of your life, I want to pray for you. And the second thing that I feel for us to uh, respond is those of us who Jesus is king of our life. And maybe we're feeling like we're not the most salty in the sense I've spoken about here, not as in the colloquial grumpiness that it's used as, but salty. We feel like we're not the most salty or not the brightest light that we could possibly be. And really, to be honest, that's all of us. But what I would love for us to have tonight is a sense of just inviting God's Holy Spirit just to fill us like Theo was praying before, just to let the presence of God come over you. See, being salt and light isn't about trying harder. Jesus didn't come back to make more Pharisees. He didn't come to earth to make Pharisees. He came to build his kingdom and to fill his people with his Holy Spirit. So it's not about striving. It's about allowing God to take over our lives, to be in his presence. And if you are in his presence, he lights you up and you will just influence the world around you naturally. It will happen. So I want to pray for, for that for us as well. So what we're going to do, we're going to stand. I'm going to pray. There's going to be some music so we can take some time to consider how we might want to respond. And then at the end of that, there's going to be some time for us to get some prayer from other people. There'll be some people towards the front that who will pray with you. And tonight I would encourage you to not so much think of, uh, is there, uh, do I need um, prayer? Is there anything in my life that um, needs prayer? And rather think, you know, uh, do I not need prayer? <laughs> do I not need um, someone to pray with me? Do I not need more of God in my life in some way, shape and form? And maybe take advantage of that opportunity tonight because, gosh, we could all do with more of our God, couldn't we? He is good. How about we close our eyes? We're going to pray. God, thank you for your presence here tonight. Thank you that your kingdom is here and is coming and is growing, Lord. Thank you that you are the king of your kingdom and you are full of light and full of goodness and you are a good, good God. And thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be a part of your kingdom and that more than that, you have called us to um, be bearers of your kingdom to the world around us as salt and as light, Lord. And I want to pray right now for those of us who've never made you king of our lives, God. Would you give us the boldness to allow you to be king of our lives? And for those of us tonight who do know you already, Lord, would you give us the boldness to come before you and say, God, I need more time in your presence. I need more time in your presence so that you can light me up so that I can glow when I'm out in the world around me, so that I can bring that flavor, so that I can inhibit the bitterness, so I can bring the sweetness, so I can call out what is good and preserve it, so that, so that through me you can bring life, so that through me you can illuminate people's lives. God, would you give us the boldness to pray that prayer tonight as well, God. We thank you for your goodness and your work in our lives and your work here tonight. Come Holy Spirit, do what you would want to do in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our Sunday podcast. If you enjoyed it, either subscribe or follow on the podcast app that you use to keep up to date on when our next Sunday podcast gets released. Have a safe and blessed week.